Today's message will come from this passage. Both Pastor John and I will be preaching today. Um, the title of today's message is The Gospel According to Isaiah. And we're going to begin actually from the New Testament in chapter 8 in the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word that is living and active and able to pierce our motives and change and transform us into the image of your son. Your word is able to renew and awaken. And so we pray that it would do just so. Speak to us personally, collectively, congregationally, that we might follow you and give you more glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead, open them, turn them on to Acts chapter 8, verse 26 to 38. I'll give you a moment to get there. As I was thinking about Christmas, there's a lot of things you can think about, but my mind was directed to the gospel as the, the most pertinent way to remember Christmas because Jesus is the centerpiece of the gospel. And I thought it'd be unique to go to the fifth, some people say the fifth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And the book of Isaiah actually has over 100 prophecies that are pointed and fulfilled in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So you can kind of say that Isaiah... The, the book of Isaiah is the fifth gospel, particularly fit, chapter 52 and 53 are most loaded with a lot of prophecies there. So I think you guys have enough time and you guys should be at Acts chapter 8 verses 26 to 38. Um, we're going to use this as an introduction to get to Isaiah 53. We'll see how God used this passage to save an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, um, through the ministry of the Spirit and through Philip. So Verse 26, chapter, chapter 8 of Acts, and then we're at beginning at verse 26. It says here, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he arose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasures. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran. He didn't pause. He didn't think about it. He didn't say, I'll get to it after my video games or whenever I feel like it. No. Philip heard the Spirit of God. He ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? A lot of insight here. It's important to understand what you're reading. So he asked a very pertinent question here, verse 31. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? He recognizes in his position that he doesn't fully understand, so he's looking for help. He's looking for, in one sense, someone to disciple him, just to show him. And so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And now in verse 32 and 33, we see the direct quote from Isaiah 53. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent. So he opened not his mouth. 
in his humiliation, in his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, And whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about anyone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and, and beginning with this scripture, told him the good news about Jesus Christ. I want you to know briefly, in order to appreciate good news, it's important to understand the bad news. And the bad news is basically this. All of humanity has rejected and rebelled against God's holiness and his law. And the consequence to that is punishment and hell forever. And in addition to that reality is that every human being is born um, in spiritual debt, in spiritual poverty before holy God. And so, yes, that is bad news that every human need, being needs to be aware of. And so the eunuch is hearing the good news for the very first time, and it's the good news about Jesus. And so the good news about Jesus is what we're going to hear more in Isaiah today. But I'll tell you this much. He would become the substitute, and he would bear and pay for the penalty of all of mankind. Verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from, get, from being baptized? I'll assume we don't see any conversation like about being baptized upon his conversion, but this is the book of Acts, and if we follow along this historic narrative of the book of Acts, we saw people over and over, beginning in chapter 2, people hearing God's word, believing God's word, and getting baptized. And so in this passage, we see the unit coming to faith, seeing water, and desiring to be baptized immediately. Verse 38, And he commanded the chariot to stop, stop, put on the brakes, and both he, the eunuch, and Philip went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And so, there's our introduction to Isaiah 53. A few things I want to highlight and a note is one, Philip listened and obeyed to the, obeyed the Spirit of God, and Philip allowed the Spirit of God to work in and through him. That is significant in making disciples and evangelism. I also want you to see that, word, that God's Word is powerful, and it's meant to be read understood, listened to, and God's word is what? Mighty to save. And we see another point I want you to see. Upon hearing and believing the gospel must come first, then baptism. And so <clears throat> saving faith comes first, and then baptism, believer's baptism, comes afterwards. And so now we're going to draw our attention to the exact passage that Philip helped the eunuch understand and so walk with me and come back with me to Isaiah 53, focusing particularly on the first four verses, and then Pastor John will look at the verses that come after that. So I'll give you a moment to get to Isaiah 53, verse 1. Um, last week, and really for the last five weeks, we've been looking at a number of passages in Isaiah that prophesies about the Savior's servant that would come he would be the Messiah that would fulfill uh, hundreds of prophecies in the New Testament, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. And so this brings us to Isaiah 53, verse 1, where two questions that are basically pointed questions 
sort of rhetorical question, sort of an evaluation question, and the questions are basically this. The first question here is, who has believed what he has heard from us? And the second question is this, and whom, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, as the preaching went forth to the people of Isaiah, it, they spoke to a real context of that time, and all of what is spoken here are also prophecies that would be filled and realized in a future time. And so, the long and short of this is that this is a hinge passage from the previous chapter in Isaiah 52, hinging to 53. It's a transition. It's basically begging these two questions. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And the, 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 the long and short of this answer is not many. Not many have believed. Many are rebellious. Many have ears that don't hear and hearts that don't want to believe. John MacArthur says this, the question implied that in spite of these and other prophecies, only a few would recognize the Savior or the servant when he appeared. This anticipation found literal fulfillment at Christ's first advent. His first advent is when he was born. His second advent is when he will come a second time. That hasn't happened yet, but guess what? If he came the first time, we can believe without a doubt Jesus will come a second time. Israel did not welcome him at his first advent. Paul applied the same prophecy to the world at large. Paul also believed and understood that many did not respond favorably initially. The second question I thought was very interesting. Um, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And what is the arm of the Lord? And, you know, we, we understand descriptions of the Lord in anthropomorphism. The, basically, we use human attributes to describe what the Lord is like. Sometimes we see the Lord is talked about and says his eyes look to and fro, or his arms reached out. And so in here, in this particular verse, we see this phrase, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What does the arm of the Lord, of the Lord refer to? Um, this is where, as Pastor John said a couple weeks ago, who doesn't like Warren Wiersbe? I'm like, yeah, who doesn't like him? He's easy to read, and people like me can understand him. And he says the following about the Lord's work. There's quite a contrast between the arm of the Lord, which speaks, which speaks of his mighty power, and a root out of the ground, which is an image of humiliation and weakness. When God made the universe, he used his finger. That's it, in Psalm 8, verse 3. And he, when he delivered Israel from Egypt, it was his strong hand, just his hand. But when he... <clears throat> but to save the lost sinner, he had to bear his mighty arm. I guess it's easier for the Lord to make an entire universe with his finger, because this is one finger. But for the saving of sinful man, all of humanity that would ever live, the Lord decided that it was necessary that his strong arms, the arm of the Lord would be needed to save the lost of sinners who had to bear his mighty, mighty arm. Yet people still, yet people still refuse to believe this great demonstration of God's power. 
God's gospel is mighty to save. Inherent has the properties and divine capacity to save and rescue sinful man, to make a spiritually dead person spiritually alive. And so, this is the response of many in the time of Isaiah, and this is the response of many today. But I want you to know that do, some do respond favorably, and some in the time of Jesus respond favorably. And today, some do respond favorably, and I believe there are still more that God has planned to respond favorably to the Lord's mighty arm. And so this Christmas Eve, I will focus on the next three verses. And we're going to look at um, three verses that feature the humble servant, Savior servant. And we're going to look at these verses. And my hope is that God's glory would be displayed and that we would experience and know his good all the more. So here are the three features. Feature number one is the servant's appearance. Feature number two is the servant's antagonist. And then feature number three is the servant's actions. And so we're going to look at verse two, which is basically a prophecy describing how the Lord would be, would, would be, excuse me, would be rejected. So feature number one, the servant's appearance in verse two. In verse two, we see the Lord's or the servant's appearance. He looked like, and we'll see what he looks like in verse Verse 2, we see, for he, referring to the Savior servant, or Jesus Christ, grew up. He went through the natural process of being born and growing up. He went through everything, uh, being little, crawling, walking, learning how to eat, probably being disciplined or rebuked by his imperfect parents. And he went through puberty to adulthood. And this all happened before him, before God the Father like a young plant and like a root out of, out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So let's just break this down further. Um, Jesus Christ had a physical body. Um, he went through the natural growing up process and it all was superseded before the Lord, the Lord was involved moment by moment, day by day in his life as Jesus grew up right before the Lord. We see also that he grew up like a young plant. Uh, this speaks of beginning in a, in a position and a beginning of humility um, in humble circumstances. Some people would even say contempt, contemptible beginnings, not worthy of a king. We see that he would grow up like a, like a young plant. He wasn't, they're not portraying him like as a stable, mighty oak in his beginnings. He is more like a sapling. Uh, we know that his beginnings were humble in the sense that even in John chapter 1, verse 46, where Nathaniel declared that nothing good could come from Nazareth. It was not a cool place. It wasn't, not, it wasn't a popular place to, to come from. And so his beginnings were humble. And we see that he also came, the servant would, would be from a root of dry ground. This image and picture is displayed all over the book of Isaiah. And again, we'll lean for more insight from Warren Wiersbe. And he, he makes the following quote. Notice 
also that the servant will grow up out of dry ground. And so this is what I'm trying to quote on or get more insight. Isaiah has used the dry ground imagery as a, refer- a reference to the condition of Israel. Israel is a spiritual wilderness, but the servant will come in the time of spiritual destitution and bring peace, joy, salvation, and redemption. Remember that the prophecy of John the baptizer was that he would be a voice crying out in the wilderness. This is not a geographic, though we read John in the wilderness during his ministry, but a description of the spiritual condition of Israel. So during this spiritual darkness, the servant will come with the Lord, watching him, and will come in close relationship with him, even though his beginning will be considered contemptible. So now the, the author describes the Lord's, or the, the Savior's servant's appearance in very plain terms. We are told that he had no form or majesty that we would look at him. What do human beings look at, typically? Probably something or someone attractive that causes us to look at, to turn our heads. Um, there are famous people that we look at because they're attractive in a human sense. For Jesus, that was not the case. And he had no beauty that we should desire him. <clears throat> so outwardly, Jesus wasn't someone that would naturally cause us to look or turn our heads. At best, people at the theologians would say he had average looks. I, I think um, most movies don't typically depict Jesus in a, in a typical way. They kind of upgrade his looks in the movies. I would say he did not look like, like, like Thor. He wasn't this buff, handsome guy or something. He wasn't like Loki, all right? I'm just getting my contemporary thoughts out today. All right. His body was wrecked. It was torn through his ministry. Um, it was whipped. It was, <clears throat> his skin was ripped open. He, he was crucified. And so... Um, he was not like uh, the kings of the Old Testament. He was not like King Saul, who had <coughs> um, an, a more sightly appearance. But we know this for sure, that Jesus Christ was the God-man in human flesh. We know in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is qualified as the God-man in the sense that he is 100% God and he's 100% man to represent man. So I could, a quick summary thought. I want to say appearance is not... Appearance is something, but appearance is not everything. Um, but we know this without a doubt. Jesus clothed himself in humility um, for God's glory and our good in human, fr- in human flesh. And so that's what he looked like. That's his appearance. The second feature that we're going to see is his antagonist in, verse 50, in chapter 53, verse 3. The prophet Isaiah foresees the hatred and rejection of bad, that mankind would point and extend toward the Messiah, the servant, Jesus Christ, who will suffer both external abuse and internal grief over the lack of response from those he came to save. 
what kind of external abuse did he experience? Well, we saw that he was, in verse 3, despised and rejected by men. Human beings that he literally created and came in to die for rejected him and despised him. Those around him, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the rulers of the days, of the, his day despised him and had him arrested. And then the Romans got involved and they mocked him. They spit on him. They beat him and they crucified him and they put a crown of thorns on his head. And so we see that he, the prophesied Messiah, would be rejected by uh, <coughs> human beings and political roars. And the, cha- the same is today. Uh, many reject him. We reject him. Um, he experienced also internal grief. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This doesn't mean that he just went around moping around sad all the time, but he was acquainted with much suffering, which, with much pain. This was a regular occurrence in his life. And so he was acquainted with this type of grief in his life. Jesus was one <coughs> from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and not and, and we esteemed him not. The prophet Isaiah spoke for the unbelieving nation's adversion to the crucified Isaiah was their lack of respect for the incarnate Son of God. And so many shunned Jesus in his day like a horrible disease. In many ways, we shunned those that would have leprosy in the same mindset and the same attitude. And it says here at the very end, we esteemed him not. We didn't think highly of him. In other, in other translations, <coughs> some said, we basically said he didn't matter at all. He wasn't worthy. There was no value. He was insignificant. Warren Wiersbe, I got a lot of Wiersbe this week. The servant of the Lord <coughs> who has come to bring peace, joy, salvation, redemption would be rejected by people and deemed insignificant by people. Though he is the servant of the Lord, revealing the salvation and the power of the Lord to the world, he would be considered contemptible, despicable, despicable and revolting. Instead of following the servant, he, they shunned him. The servant will be forsaken and rejected by people. So quick question, as followers, as a, as followers of Christ, do we experience rejection for righteousness' sake, like the Sermon on the Mount? Do we experience antagonism for our obedience to Christ? Or do we somehow have made up our own Christianity that's been watered down, that's a little less than obedient, to the point you avoid uh, rejection, and to the point you dodge um, <clears throat> being despised. I think most Christians consider suffering these days at this level. I'm not getting my way and I'm not getting my preferences. So I'm upset and mad and we call that suffering these days. That's pretty much where the suffering level of most Christians go to these days. It's not ideal for me. This is not ideal, so I'm just suffering in this. But maybe, maybe that is the suffering the Lord is calling you today to die to your suffering. I mean, excuse me, die to your preferences and die to not getting to your, getting your ways all the, day, all the time and die to your idealism 
and die to your perfectionism. That might be the case. Last point, the servant's actions. These are profound. On verse 4, God sent his son on a rescue mission to fulfill these prophecies here. And so we see the actions, the demonstration of the servant savior. Um, We see in this passage that he, referring to Jesus, has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Um, These two words I just want to highlight really quickly, bore and carry. The Hebrew word bore is nasah. When I first studied this in grad school, I go, that sounds like NASA. And it helped me to understand that reminds me of carry up to be lifted up. So Jesus came that, to, to lift up um, our griefs. So I'll remember that Hebrew word, bore, nasa, like a rocket that goes up in the air. You get the idea. So Jesus did that for us. He took our um, grief. He bore them. Um, the Hebrew word for carry is sabal, which means to bear, carry, to drag along a burden to shoulder. Jesus is there, and this, <coughs> this Savior servant would bear our sorrows and carry our sorrows in this way. John MacArthur has deep insights here. He says, even though the verbs are past tense, they predict future happenings to Isaiah's time. These are in the prophetic perfects in Hebrew. Isaiah was saying that the Messiah would bear the consequences of the sins of men, namely our griefs and sorrows of life. Though, incredibly, the Jews... (coughs) who watched him die, thought he was being punished by God for his own sins. So sad. In John, cross-reference, in John chapter 2, verse 9, who is Jesus? Jesus would be the one that we are to behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In 1 Peter 2, verse 24, a very popular verse, it says here, he himself, Jesus himself, no one else, bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. This is a profound verse. Jesus Christ is our substitute. He stood in our place. He paid the price. He atoned for our sins. He bore the wrath of God for us. Jesus Christ bore God's wrath as a means of punishment for the penalty we deserved, thus satisfying the wrath of God and the God's holy law. So we're going to look at this passage and ask five quick questions and answer them as we process the doc, great doctrine of substitutionary atonement, which essentially is the heart of the gospel. No substitutionary atonement, guess what? No gospel. So key number one, who was the atonement actually for? The actual atonement is sufficient for the sins of the world who is made for all who would believe, namely the elect. Key number two, who does having died to sins, <coughs> um, who's this, what does this mean? Benet, excuse me, to mean. This is true by the miracle of being in Christ. We die to sin in the sense that we paid its penalty, death, its penalty, death, and by being in Christ when he died as our substitute. What does it mean to live for righteousness? Not 
only have we been declared just and righteous, the penalty of our sin paid by His death, but we have been risen to walk in newness or new life empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then key number four. What does whose stripes were healed mean? What does that mean? Though the wounds of Christ at the cross, believers are healed spiritually from dead, deadly disease of sin, physical healing will come or comes at glorification only in the life to come when God gives us a new body. Parts of me longs for that because I'm tired of my own body. And when there is no more physical pain, death, or <coughs> illness, or death, we see that in Revelation 21, verse 4. I'm going to illustrate this really quickly. Um, some of you know that my mom passed away of cancer, and this is kind of what it looks like. I saw cancer ravage my mother's body. As week by week, month by month went by, I saw a lady who was about 110, 5 foot 4, come to a point where it was literally skin hanging on bones, draped over bones. And so that cancer was wrecking havoc in my mom's body. But picture this. By the a divine miracle, if I could pull that cancer out of my mom's body and put it on myself, and cancer played itself out, who would die? I would die, and what? My mom would have lived. This is a weak picture, but a significant picture that grabs hold of what atonement is like. Christ dies for our sins. In one sense, this is what he did on the cross for every one of us. He takes not our cancer, but our sin upon himself, that, we, that you might have life by faith and he would die. But with God, he resurrects himself. And so that's what Jesus did. So he dies and rises again. Key number five, what does this phrase mean? Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Even though Jesus is going around healing people and forgiving of their sin, notice how we considered him. We saw the servant being what? stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. In essence, people around him didn't speak highly of him. They weren't thanking him. They weren't praising him. They literally <coughs> were inflicting more suffering. And so let's just review, and then we'll wrap, and we'll transition. Um, what are the three features of the Savior's servant? He, he had a, a common human appearance. He had antagonist. Um, and then we see that he had radical action. He died on the cross for our sins. And so that is the good news, my friends, the heart of the gospel, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. This is the main point, and this is the main purpose of Jesus Christ and Easter. And so I'm going to close with this illustration. I can't help but I want to mix like, historical illustrations and modern illustrations in different times. So if you've ever read uh, The Hunger Games or seen their movies, um, this scene might have caught your attention. <coughs> this is, uh, this is a, a scene where they're trying to pull one male and one female from every district. Some of the districts, like three and four, have well-trained and well-nourished people. Um, this is where... 
<laughs> this is District 12, where these people are malnutrition, not trained. And Prim is called upon. Her name is picked out. And she's a little girl, and, and they're malnourished, they're weak, they're not trained, and they would surely die in these games. And so it's grim. It's sad. And so when Prim was picked out, Katniss shouts out, and she goes, No! I volunteer! I volunteer as tribute. So Katniss becomes the representative for District 12. Katniss substitutes herself for her little sister. She would represent her district and family. And that's more on a human level. But Jesus, as this, our substitute, as our Messiah, he would take the place of cowardly disciples, scheming religious and political leaders. Jesus would take the place of Barabbas, cursing criminals. He would take the place of people like you and me, born sinners who mock him, who shake their fists at him, who, who deny him. Not just three times. We look at Peter and like, yeah, he denied it. We deny him so many times, countless times. But the Lord is gracious and he took the bitter cup. He bore the wrath of God for you and me. So what Christ did was far more than what Katniss did. Not even close. Christ represented all of humanity far more than District 12. And he bore our sins on the cross for you and me. My question for you is basically this. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? And when sin is removed from you, when you're alive in Christ, have you and do you experience newness of life as you, <coughs> you have been born again? Have you been freed to run um, <coughs> in this such a way that you live for righteousness. Brother John, let's take us home. Thank you, Gary. And certainly uh, we are reminded from Isaiah 53 of the importance of Christ as Messiah for our sins. In fact, Pastor Gary and I had talked about the Ethiopian eunuch, a court official that had spoken with Philip as Philip led him to understand the importance of Christ of the Messiah, and to explain to him that Isaiah 53, as we were reading uh, verses uh, 1 through 6 in particular, was speaking prophetically and was fulfilled in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Uh, I'm covering verses 5 and 6 of Isaiah 53, and verse 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Uh, one of the questions that Philip the evangelist asked the Ethiopian uh, eunuch was, of whom is Isaiah speaking? Of himself or of some other man. And of course Philip had the privilege to explain uh, to the Ethiopian court official uh, that this 
Isaiah 53, 5 and 6 was speaking of Christ, was speaking of the one who had just died and of the Passover they had just celebrated. And so in Isaiah 53, the last verse ends with, Therefore will I divide him, the Messiah, a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. And so we see in verse 5 the crushing of Christ for our salvation. He was pierced. He was crushed. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we see expressions of why Christ suffered and was crushed for the sins of humanity. Jesus was born to die. Matthew 1 tells us as the angel, the angelos, the messenger from heaven, told Mary, the virgin, you're going to have a baby, baby Jesus. And he will be born to save his people from their sins. That's the connection between Isaiah 53 and the gospel. The messianic prophecy of Isaiah 53 reminds us that the suffering servant came to fulfill all the requirements necessary for one to make substitutionary atonement for all people. Christ was pierced, bruised, beaten, whipped, crushed, that we might be healed. And in verse 6, we see the cause of the comparison using the analogy of the sheep. Christ was crushed. He willfully allowed himself to suffer so that humanity would have the privilege one day of receiving salvation forever and ever. In verse 6, notice, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. Sheep are not exactly known to be very intelligent critters. And sheep are reflective in the prophet Isaiah's thought process here. The Hebrew word he uses here for sheep is reminding us that we need a Savior, a shepherd. The reason for Christ's suffering was because humanity had chosen to do that which was wrong. Pastor Gary alluded in verses 1 through 4, the antagonist, those that turned and rejected Christ, instead of receiving him as the king of kings, they crucified him. In fact, let us be reminded from the teaching of the totality of the Gospels that the week before, we sometimes allude to as Palm Sunday, they were crying, Hosanna to the king. And about a week later, they're crying, crucify him. We choose him, we choose Barabbas, an insurrectionist to have freedom, but we want to crucify Christ instead of place him as the king of kings. And so the reason for Christ's suffering was because humanity, most of his own people, rejected him. It is natural to do that according to this teaching of verse 6. Like sheep to go astray, we have turned, the Scripture says, everyone to his own way. In fact, the Bible uses about 20 different words in both Hebrew and Greek to remind us that we are sinners. Sin, mistake, iniquity, rebellion, transgression, missing the mark, defiance, wickedness to err, moral evil, lawlessness, godlessness, guilty, willful sins, 
unwillful sins, sins that you're knowledgeable of doing wrong, sins that you are ignorant that you even did wrong. The Bible uses about 20 words to remind us that all we like sheep have gone astray. Some sins may be malicious and intentional. They may be a a breaking of the Ten Commandments. Other sins may be subtle and selfish. But all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. I mentioned in a message uh, a few weeks ago that if every person sinned one time a day, an average person, according to those who survey, lives 28,000 days. And so 28,000 days of one cent a day for one person times all approximate human beings of 8 billion in our world today would be over 22 trillion sins if a person just committed one sin a day. Be reminded, the scripture says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. If you and I act one time in a day without faith, and we do something selfish, it is sin. That's 22 trillion sins for just the number of population on planet Earth at this moment, not including all who have ever lived or will continue to live in the future. That is why we come to our final point. Verse 6 says, all we have gone astray. We are guilty of sins of all kinds and degrees. We've turned to our own way. But what the Lord has laid on him, that's Christ, the iniquity of us all. So we have not only the crushing of Christ for our salvation, the cause of the comparison of the sheep, but we have the credit of Christ's imputation as our substitute. Pastor Gary mentioned substitutionary atonement and gave us several wonderful analogies for that. Christ imputed his righteousness to us and imputed upon him was the sinfulness of the entire world. Our final lesson from verse 6 is that the Lord laid on Christ, the Messiah, the iniquity of all people. Jesus, the Messiah, had never sinned, yet he willfully accepted the penalty of all humanity's sin By suffering as a sacrifice upon the cross, this placing of all our sin upon Christ imputed our unrighteousness to him. And as the sinless Savior, he imputed his righteousness on all those who will trust and follow him as their Lord. When a person confesses that they are a sinner, that they need a Savior to save them from sin, they will receive the imputed righteousness of God. Charles Spurgeon says, Christ gave us pardon of sin. He gave us imputed righteousness. These are precious things. But you see, we are not content with that. We have received Christ for himself. The Son of God has been poured out into us, and we have received him and appropriated him. End of quote. The church is not an organization with Christ as a president, The church is an organism with Christ as its head. When Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't fighting the battle for himself. He didn't need to overcome Satan. He was greater than Satan. He fought for you and for I. 
He made a transaction often called the divine exchange for our eternal salvation. Jesus became the Son of Man that you might become the Son of God. He took your sins that you might be found innocent. He became guilty that you might be acquitted. He was filled with despair that you might be filled with joy. Christ took our shame that we might have his glory. He suffered the pain of hell that you might know the joy of heaven. Hebrew scholars tell us that there is an intensive Hebrew plural in Isaiah 53, 1-6. When it speaks of the death and suffering of Christ, scholars say this literally can be interpreted, Christ, the Messiah, died a thousand deaths. Jesus, being infinite, suffered for a finite amount of time. That you and I, being finite, would suffer, not but rule and reign with him for an infinite amount of time. That great exchange took place. He suffered on the cross an eternity of hell so that you and I would never have to suffer. I close with these words from Max Lucado as we are about to transition into communion. Max Lucado wrote, quote, If it is true that a picture paints a thousand words, then the Roman centurion got a dictionary full. All the Roman centurion saw was Jesus suffer hanging on a cross. He never heard him preach or saw him heal or followed him through the crowd. He never witnessed Jesus steal the stormy wind. He only witnessed the way he died. But that was all it took to cause this weather-worn soldier to take a giant step in faith. Surely, he said, the Roman centurion, this was a righteous man. That says a lot, writes Max Lucado. It says the rubber of faith thinks the road of reality under hardship. It says the trueness of a person's belief is revealed in pain. Genuineness and character unveiled misfortune. Maybe that's what moved this old, crusty Roman soldier. Anyone can preach a sermon on a mount surrounded by daisies, but only one with a gut full of faith can live a sermon on a mountain of pain. End of quote. As Pastor Gary mentioned his mom, and what he saw in her suffering. My dad has lost much weight as he battles cancer. It's difficult when we see family suffer, when we see someone we care about suffer. Christ suffered to become our substitute so that we would never have to suffer in eternity. He who never sinned became sin in that moment God forsook himself. My God, my God, Jesus cried, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, he became our eternal sacrifice so that one day if you believe in him and receive him, you will have life forever in heaven. I want to close with the legend of the candy cane that will lead us into a moment of communion and reflection on this Christmas Eve day. The legend of the candy cane. Some of you may have received a candy cane as you walked in. Maybe you know the story. Maybe you're not certain of that story. But certainly it was a wonderful reminder. In Indiana years ago, a candy maker wanted to make candy that would be a reminder of who Jesus Christ was. So he fashioned and designed a Christmas candy cane. He started off with a stick of pure white hard candy. 
The white color, like my shirt color, symbolized the virgin birth and sinless nature of Jesus in his purity. The hardness of the candy cane symbolized the foundation of the church and the certain promises of God. The candy maker made the candy in the form of a J. It represented the name, the first letter, of Jesus. And he formed it so it would be a staff because Jesus is the good shepherd. The candy maker then made three stripes which showed the scourging and blood that Jesus shed when he died and suffered for the sins of mankind. When you break the candy cane, may it remind you of Jesus' body broken for us. Well, as Pastor Dylan and Chaplain Terry come to help us today, we are reminded of the symbolism of Isaiah, the prophet of Christ, the Messiah, his suffering as a suffering servant, fulfilled in the birth on in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And there the angels cried out, Behold, a Savior is born this day in Bethlehem, a Savior which is called and is the Christ. And so today we have our communion right here, Pastor Dylan, Chaplain Terry right up front here.